This is section 34 of Mark Twain, A Biography, Volume 2. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Mark Twain, A Biography, by Albert Bigelow Payne. Chapter 138, Many Undertakings. To write a detailed biography of Mark Twain at this period would be to defy perusal, even to set down all the interesting matters interesting to the public of his time would mean not only to exhaust the subject but the reader he lived at the top of his bent and almost anything relating to him was regarded as news daily and hourly he mingled with important matters or spoke concerning them a bare list of the interesting events of mark twain's life would fill a large volume he was so busy so deeply interested himself so vitally alive to every human aspect he read the papers through and there was always enough to arouse his indignation the doings of the human race at large could be relied upon to do that and he would write and write to relieve himself his mental niagara was always pouring away turning out articles essays communications on every conceivable subject mainly with the idea of reform there were many public and private abuses and he wanted to correct them all he covered reams of paper with lurid heresies political religious civic for most of which there was no hope of publication now and then he was allowed to speak out an order from the post office department at washington concerning the subscription of envelopes seemed to him unwarranted he assailed it and directly the nation was being entertained by a controversy between mark twain and the postmaster-general's private secretary who subsequently receded from the field at another time on the matter of postage rates he wrote a paper which began reader suppose you were an idiot and suppose you were a member of congress but i repeat myself it is hardly necessary to add that the paper did not appear on the whole clemens wrote his strictures more for relief than to print and such of these papers as are preserved to-day form a curious collection of human documents many of them could be printed to-day without distress to anyone the conditions that invited them are changed the heresies are not heresies any more he may have had some thought of their publication in later years for once he wrote sometimes my feelings are so hot that i have to take the pen and put them out on paper to keep them from setting me afire inside then all that ink and labor are wasted because i can't print the result i have just finished an article of this kind and it satisfies me entirely it does my weather-beaten soul good to read it and admire the trouble it would make for me and the family i will leave it behind and utter it from the grave there is a free speech there and no harm to the family it is too late and too soon to print most of these things too late to print them for their salutary influence too soon to print them as literature he was interested in everything in music as little as he knew of it 
he had an ear for melody a dramatic vision and the poetic conception of sound reading some lilting lyric he could fancy the words marching to melody and would cast about among his friends for some one who could supply a tuneful setting once he wrote to his friend the rev dr parker who was a skilled musician urging him to write a score for tennyson's bugle song outlining an attractive scheme for it which the order of his fancy had formulated dr parker replied that the bugle song often attempted had been the despair of many musicians he was interested in business affairs already before the european trip he had embarked in and disembarked from a number of pecuniary ventures he had not been satisfied with a strictly literary income the old tendency to speculative investment acquired during those restless mining days always possessed him there were no silver mines in the east no holes in the ground into which to empty money and effort there were plenty of equivalents inventions stock companies and the like he had begun by putting five thousand dollars into the american publishing company but that was a sound and profitable venture and deserves to be remembered for that reason then a man came along with a patent steam generator which would save ninety per cent of the fuel energy or some such amount and mark twain was early persuaded that it would revolutionize the steam manufacturers of the world so he put in whatever bank surplus he had and bade it a permanent good-bye following the steam generator came a steam pulley a rather small contrivance but it succeeded in extracting thirty-two thousand dollars from his bank account in a period of sixteen months by the time he had accumulated a fresh balance a new method of marine telegraphy was shown him so he used it up on that twenty-five thousand dollars being the price of this adventure a watch company in western new york was ready to sell him a block of shares by the time he was prepared to experiment again but it did not quite live to declare the first dividend on his investment senator john p jones invited him to join in the organization of an accident insurance company and such was jones confidence in the venture that he guaranteed clemens against loss mark twain's only profit from this source was in the delivery of a delicious speech which he made at a dinner given to cornelius walford of london an insurance author of repute jones was paying back the money presently and about that time came a young inventor named graham bell offering stock in a contrivance for carrying the human voice on an electric wire at almost any other time clemens would eagerly have welcomed this opportunity but he was so gratified at having got his money out of the insurance venture that he refused to respond to the happy hello call of fortune in some memoranda made thirty years later he said i declined i said i didn't want anything more to do with wildcat speculation then he bell offered the stock to me at twenty-five i said i didn't want it at any price he became eager insisted that i take five hundred dollars worth he said he would sell me as much as i wanted for five hundred dollars offered to let me gather it up in my hands and measure it in a plug hat said i could have a whole hatful for five hundred dollars but i was the burnt child and i resisted all these temptations 
resisted them easily, went off with my check intact, and next day lent five thousand of it on an unendorsed note to a friend who was going to go bankrupt three days later. About the end of the year I put up a telephone wire from my house down to the current office, the only telephone wire in town, and the first one that was ever used in a private house in the world. That had been only a little while before he sailed for Europe. When he returned he would have been willing to accept a very trifling interest in the telephone industry for the amount of his insurance salvage. He had a fresh interest in patents now, and when his old friend Dan Sloat got hold of a new process for engraving, the kaolatype or chalk plate process, which was going to revolutionize the world of illustration, he promptly acquired a third interest, and eventually was satisfied with nothing short of control. It was an ingenious process. A sheet of perfectly smooth steel was coated with a preparation of kaolin, or china clay, and a picture was engraved through the coating down to the steel surface. This formed the matrix into which the molten metal was poured to make the stereotype plate, or die, for printing. It was Clemens' notion that he could utilize this process for the casting of brass dies for stamping book covers, that, so applied, the fortunes to be made out of it would be larger and more numerous. Howells tells how, at one time, Clemens thought the damned human race was almost to be redeemed by a process of founding brass without air bubbles in it. This was the time referred to, and the race had to go unredeemed, for, after long, worried, costly experimenting, the brass refused to accommodate its nature to the new idea, while the chalk plate itself, with all its subsidiary and auxiliary possibilities, was infringed upon right and left, and the protecting patent failed to hold. The process was doomed in any case. It was barely established before the photographic etching processes, superior in all ways, were developed and came quickly into use. The kaolatype enterprise struggled nobly for a considerable period. Clemens brought his niece's husband, young Charles L. Webster, from Fredonia to manage it for him, and backed it liberally. Webster was vigorous, hard-working, and capable, but the end of each month showed a deficit, until Clemens was from forty to fifty thousand dollars out of pocket in his effort to save the race with chalk and brass. The history of these several ventures, and there were others, dismissed here in a few paragraphs, would alone make a volume not without interest, certainly not without humor. Following came the typesetting machine, but we are not ready for that. Of necessity it is a longer, costlier story. Mrs. Clemens did not share his enthusiasm in these various enterprises. She did not oppose them, at least not strenuously, but she did not encourage them. She did not see their need. Their home was beautiful. They were happy. He could do his work in deliberation and comfort. She knew the value of money better than he, cared more for it in her own way, but she had not his desire to heap up vast and sudden sums, to revel in torrential golden showers. She was willing to let well enough alone. Clemens could not do this, and suffered accordingly. 
in the midst of fair home surroundings and honors we find him writing to his mother life has come to be a very serious matter with me i have a badgered harassed feeling a good part of my time it comes mainly from business responsibilities and annoyances he had no moral right to be connected with business at all he had a large perception of business opportunity but no vision of its requirements its difficulties and details he was the soul of honor but in anything resembling practical direction he was but a child during any period of business venture he was likely to be in hot water eagerly excited worried impatient alternately suspicious and overtrusting rash frenzied and altogether upset yet never even to the end of his days would he permanently lose faith in speculative ventures human traits are sometimes modified but never eliminated the man who is born to be a victim of misplaced confidence will continue to be one so long as he lives and there are men willing to victimize him the man who believes in himself as an investor will uphold that faith against all disaster so long as he draws breath and has money to back his judgments end of chapter one hundred and thirty eight many undertakings read by john greenman